This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Kick out the jams, motherfuckers. This is Wayne Kramer from the MC5, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, hooray! Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here behind the mic at the San Francisco Studios today. Thank you once again for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further and dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the original on the network, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. If you'd like to help out the RNRA network, please head over to our brand new website and click on the Support the Shows tab. You can click from there to our Patreon page and make a much appreciated donation. Or if you'd like to just pick up some awesome rock and roll archaeology swag, click to our T public link. That's rockandrollarchaeology.com. Thank you. Okay, my pretties, for you today, my special guest is none other than Dennis Dunaway, original bassist of the Alice Cooper Group. First off, Dennis is far more than the bassist for the band. It is he and another high school art class geek uh, named Vince Fernier that sat together in back rows of classes mocking teachers during the day and at night in bedrooms strewn with Elvis and Beatle records that dreamed up what would become Alice Cooper. The band, first called the Earwigs, the Spiders, and the Naz, before settling on the name of a 17th century fictitious witch, was birthed in Phoenix, Arizona of the early 1960s. There they became a top club act, even with a local hit on the airwaves and some opening slots for the likes of the Yardbirds and the Animals. So what's a big fish in a little desert oasis to do but pack up and move to the big time of L.A. for the summer of love? 
Here they meet Frank Zappa and the GTOs, the girls together outrageously, <laughs> yeah, look them up, uh, where they gladly descend into the freak movement, a weirder subculture of the hippies, and become so ridiculously outrageous on stage that they were known to clear a room faster than Linda Blair could spin her head. After two albums, Produce For You and Easy Action on Zappa's straight records label failed to chart, they moved to Detroit, befriend the MC5 and the Stooges, who were rocking a darker and more aggressive sound to the kids that the Boys of Alice adopted, along with a new sinister stage show inspired by horror movies and comic book fantasies. <laughs> yes, they invent this stuff, folks. Very importantly, they get the hookup with a young Bob Ezrin, who begins to produce their records, and blammo, they go on to rule the rock charts of the early and mid-1970s, with albums Love It to Death, Killer, School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies, and Muscle of Love. And then, that's it for the band. Alice Cooper the Man, along with Ezrin and manager Shep Gordon, put out Welcome to My Nightmare as a solo endeavor, and since it becomes a huge success, uh, the rest of the guys were left under the wheels. All of this is in great detail in Dennis's book, Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs, My Adventures in the Alice Cooper Group, written along with Chris Hodenfield from our friends at Macmillan Publishers. We will get into the history of this highly influential group right here and right now. Ladies and gentlemen, May I introduce to you Dennis Dunaway? The telephone is ringing. You got me on the run. I'm driving in my car now. Anticipating fun. I'm driving right up to you, babe. I guess that you could. You were under my wheels, honey Why don't you let me be? Cause when you call me on the telephone Say, take me to the show And then I said, honey, I just can't go Oh, lady, sick and I can't leave her home Dennis Dunaway, welcome to Deeper Dicks and Rock Hey, it's great to be on Okay, okay, first question the Alice Cooper Group certainly achieves its greatest success in the early 1970s, but really, the band comes out of the late 1960s. Um, I, I, I might even call you guys the last 60s band to make it. And while we'll get to the history that includes the very early days in Phoenix and then Detroit and finally New York, uh, before, uh, before it goes from band to man, <laughs> uh, I want to start with a question about your time in L.A., so you are a bit of an art historian, right? Well, yeah, I'm an art appreciator, but I'm also uh, an artist. That's when I was little. That's uh, all I had to, my only toy was a chalkboard, and I would draw a bunny, and Grandma would go, ooh, and I'd draw an elephant, and Grandma would go, ooh. <laughs> and then grade school, people didn't even know my name. They called me the artist. That's right. That's right. So did you ever think, uh, either at the time or afterwards, that hanging around places like the Landmark Motel and the Band's House and Tabanka Canyon or Hollywood in general, uh, with the likes of The Doors, Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Zappa, that 
really, you were involved in a sort of the salons of Paris during the Belle Epoque uh, era before World War II. It's at, at, as if you guys were like the Toulouse and hanging out with Matisse and Renoir and Degas, Gauguin and Van Gogh. Well, yeah, it was like that, but it was also some uh, harsh realities of uh, trying to make ends meet as we went. And uh, So, you know, looking back on it, you tend to forget that... Uh, Let's see how much change we have to see if we can split a taco kind of stuff. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and then we go home and hang out with the doors. <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? I mean, the story that you tell in, uh, in the book of the doors coming to the house in Tabanga Canyon. Uh, and, uh, and I think uh, the GTOs are there as well. And uh, is it Miss Mercy who's kind of like the occultist and, and gives a seance and Morrison's like really into it. And, and then, then for some reason he, uh, you guys start making a bet about walking to Hollywood and he says he's going to do it without his shoes. Right. Yeah, well, it, I don't think the GTOs were at that party. It was the Doors girlfriends who kind of stirred it up. And this friend of ours named Norma headed up the seance that none of the band knew about. We, you know, all of a sudden Norma comes into the party. The Doors are there. And uh, Paul Rothschild from Electra Records, who produced uh, Paul Butterfield and the Doors and on and on. And uh, David Crosby was there. And Alvin Lee from Love, who were gigantic in L.A. at the time. But uh, then Norma comes in and uh, hits a spoon against a glass and gets everybody's attention, says, there's going to be a seance. And we're like, seance, what? <laughs> and, and Jim Morrison was into it. Big time. Sure, he was deep it. into it. Yeah. He is holding, they sat in a circle and Jim was holding Alice's hand and Michael Bruce's hand and, and, uh, everything was really quiet because Morrison was so into it, but the outer circle, which included me and David Crosby and Paul Rothschild and whatnot, you know, we were the skeptics, you know, but there was a little candle in the middle of the room. So these big spooky kind of shadows uh, bouncing on the wall and, and uh, and then Norma all of a sudden had this gruff voice that uh, she was from the past and she was from this house and something happened in the house and she wanted to, you know, release these spirits or whatever. And, and then she all of a sudden leaned forward and her hair went into the candle and uh, and then all of a sudden she snapped out of it and she was normal Norma again. And it was a an Academy Award performance. <laughs> well, it is hard. <laughs> the, it is hard. Yeah. Oh, the Doors loved it. But then at the end of the party, then uh, they were going to get in their their car and, and head back to L.A., which was a ways away. We were up on the hill in uh, Topanga Canyon, and it was yeah, quite, a, quite a hike, you know, to get to, back to Laurel Canyon. So. Yeah. So uh, 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 the guys are getting in the car, and, and Glenn says, you know, we hoof it to Laurel Canyon from here. And the other guy's like, no, you don't. And so Glenn was showing Jim Morrison the holes in his shoes from walking that far. And so Jim Morrison decided he's going to do it. And he went outside. We lived on this mountain, and it was dark, you know, and he just took off his boots and heaved them over the side of the cliff and went walking off into the dark. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. 
Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist. We'll be right back with our show. This episode of Rock and Roll Archaeology is brought to you by the audiobook edition of Been So Long by Yorma Kalkinen, uh, read by the man himself. Now, diggers, all you have to do is enter for a chance to win an audiobook CD by going to macmillanaudio.com slash been so long. Listen as Yorma gives us a rare glimpse into his heart, soul, and his incredible journey through the psychedelic era of America. Here, never before told details about his addiction and recovery, relationships, and how he found his place in the world of music. With a foreword written and read by Grace Slick, an afterward written and read by Jack Cassidy, and bonus live music, this audiobook is a must-have for Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna fans. Again, enter for a chance to win an audiobook CD at macmillanaudio.com slash been so long. All right, let's get back to the show. So a lot of people don't realize that Alice Cooper begins as the earwigs and then the spiders and then the Naz uh, first and that all of you formed out of Phoenix, Arizona. And I think everyone except Neil Smith came from the same high school. Is that right? Uh, well, Michael went to North High and uh, Neil went to Camelback High, but all of those were kind of like stones throw apart. Mm-hmm. And then Glenn Buxton and Alice and I went to Cortez High School, plus the two original bands of the uh, members of the Earwigs, uh, John Tatum and John Spear. Went, so it was just high school dance. kids, you know, and I was... I was 16 when I met Alice. He was 15, and I think a year after that, then uh, we decided to start a band. We didn't even know what we were going to play or anything. It was just we decided, okay, uh, we're, we became friends in art class, so let's uh, get do a surrealistic band. Let's form a band, and then we'll put do artistic ideas. So that's how it started. And then later we got uh, Michael Bruce when John... Tatum quit, and then uh, when we were in Los Angeles in 97, then Neil Smith joined. Uh, it's 67, 67. 67, oh, good. Uh, <laughs> it's six uh, for nine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so uh, let's see. So the the, um, the the book starts with you and and Alice, and I'll, I'll refer to the band as Alice Cooper, and and to keep things straight, we'll we'll call Vince Alice. Uh, and the intention is is that the the this this really was a group effort from the start. Yeah, I mean, even our first albums. It, uh, the song credits were Alice Cooper, which meant all five of us. Mm-hmm. And we, to this day, each guy gets 20% on for songwriting. Uh, and, you know, in the very early days, if somebody walked into a room and said, Hey, Alice, you know, it was all of you. We, well, well, we all looked at that, like they're not hip to what we're doing. Nobody would look, you know, Oh, it, it wasn't Alice. It wasn't any particular person. It was we. We had this artistic idea of this name of the entire band being this girl's name, and uh, you know, it was very uh, avant-garde sort of thinking at the time. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so as you said, you and and Alice bond over art class in high school, and also long distance running. So, you guys understood work ethic and conditioning, planning, and of course, you know, with the art side, pushing boundaries, commenting on society, and reflecting what is happening at the time. Um, and I think you both were uh, had a thing for uh, for Dadaism and surrealism, right? Yeah, right. Definitely, and not only that, but also the pop art. Uh, you know, Andy like Warhol, all, all the things that were coming out of New York City, uh, Bob Dylan. Actually, we discovered Bob Dylan because our art teacher uh, came up to us and said, you guys think you're so hip. Uh, I want you to come <laughs> to this class after school. And she put on a Bob Dylan album. We had never heard of him. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so, you know, those all uh, it sort of was deep-rooted in art artistic yeah. concepts yeah so so before we get uh moving further with the group what was it like growing up in the dunaway house what's the superhero origin story of dennis dunaway okay well if you go way back to uh when i was like five years old there's a photograph of uh a country band in oregon i was born in in cresswell oregon outside of eugene and uh, and I would go to these honky tonk uh, shows. I saw Minnie Pearl was there and Grandpa Jones, and I was there, and I remember it. Mm. Uh, it, it it affected me, you know. And and the two girls who were singing with the country band were my cousins, Glenelg and Shirley. Oh wow! So uh, so you know, and then and then uh, uh, when we would be uh, at my grandpa's farm. Uh, on a Saturday night, every once in a blue moon, you know, they'd roll up the carpets and, and all of my uncles and aunts even would, would play, uh, country music and, uh, Glen Allen Shirley would sing and they'd pour salt on the floor. So when you did the two step, you could hear the feet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm not sure how good that was for grandma's floor, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hey, so I grew up with country. Down. Right, right. Yeah, I, I grew up with country. That's all my dad would allow in the house or on the car radio. And, uh, you know, uh, when when oh, the Beatles I hit, I, I, I you have know, the same problem. Yeah, yeah. Lots of yeah, you guys. your your dad was Texas from Texas, right? Yeah, that is true. Yeah. OK, well, my dad was born in Texas, even though he was raised in Oklahoma. But still, uh, uh, so we have the similar things and it and it kind of spurred us both on into rock and roll right because you're repressed you're repressed for a while and and everybody knows when your parents uh, tell you you can't listen to that that's oh, what you're you going to listen to <laughs> yeah so it was it was one of those things you know i grew up uh when uh elvis would be on the ed sullivan show or whatever you know my my dad would want to turn it over and it was all i could do to keep him from turning the channel you know but uh you know i remember early on the who uh were came on television they were at a festival and pete townsend threw his guitar into the crowd and i'm laying on the floor uh watching television my mom and dad were in the room and and they're saying, why did he throw away that perfectly good guitar? You know, and I'm thinking, that's the coolest thing I ever saw. Because <laughs> he doesn't care. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. 
pretty awesome. Um, you dedicate the book to Glenn Buxton, who um, passed in 1997, and you make several points about Glenn and his importance to the band. Um, he was the first one you and Alice corralled. Um, w- tell me what he brought to the Alice Cooper group. Uh, Glenn was a rebel, and he he didn't like rules. He didn't like any kind of authority. He was very... Uh, W.C. Fields, you know, in uh, It's a Gift, you know, and, and those movies, The Bank Dick, that Glenn had that kind of an attitude where everyday life and people telling him what to do, uh, you know, was just uh, annoying to him. And uh, so he was a true rebel, uh, definitely. Uh, and he was, he had this fiery sarcasm. It was, it was so wonderful because he could cut people to ribbons, and everybody would like what he said, including the person that was the target. Oh, yeah. So so they would enjoy uh, the dress down then. Yeah, it was, like, uh, it was like Don Rickles. You'd almost be insulted if he didn't <laughs> insult you, you know? Right, right. right. Uh, and he had a million a day. I wish I could have written down everything he said, because trying to recapture that in the book, uh, you know, he'd have, like, 20 memorable things every day. But then uh, years later, trying to remember all of it is impossible. Uh, he was a one of a kind and he had a heart of gold, but uh, life was tough for Glenn. Uh, he, he, he would like, you know, if, if some guy's filling your car up with gas back in the days when somebody would do that for you, uh, you know, Glenn would talk to that guy and, and hang out with him and, and talk to just the regular kids, you know, and and uh, he really enjoyed that. But if it was anybody that's telling you any kind of rules, then forget it. You know, it's like Glenn wouldn't even give you a birthday present on your birthday because that's what society told him to do. He'd give you a gift out of the blue for no reason at all. <laughs> right. So, so everything was like that with Glenn and with the Alice Cooper group image. Uh, we had, it was us against the world. So we were bucking all kinds of rules. Everybody in the music business were telling us that we can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. You got to do this. You know, so Glenn was perfect for that, but he was, uh, as musically, he was the fiery element. Mm. He's the one that gave us the edge. So he gave you the edge and the street cred while uh, you and Alice uh, had the art house side and the maybe the, the nerdism, if you will. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it, it's interesting when you think of all of the personalities involved. The chemistry of the group was, you know, Michael Bruce was a, a football player in high school. You know, that's the opposite of Alice and I. We were the long-distance runners, yeah, which is yeah. a different ball game. You know, and Glenn, Glenn basically, the only exercise he got was firing off wisecracks uh, under his breath in the back of the classroom, you know. but uh, And Neil was, Neil was in a surf band, you know. He was, uh, uh, he was doing music and, and already, you know, uh, had his dreams. You know, there's a lot going on in Phoenix, Arizona then. Uh, Mid-60s, uh, there was quite a great music scene with lots of venues, lots of venues that didn't have alcohol so they could draw a young crowd. And we played to like 800 people a night for three nights every weekend. And uh, uh, and there were yeah, other this, bands. This is that a too- VIP club, right? 
the VIP club, but the Tubes also came out of Phoenix. That's right. That's uh, right. Neil was in a band with Rick Anderson and Vince Welnick and Spooner, and all those guys were our friends then, which is kind of cool. We did this tour in England last November with Alice, and the Tubes were opening band. So there were eight guys from that era of Arizona all went to high school at the same time within a stone's throw apart. And now we're all headlining at Wembley, 14,000 people. <laughs> that is true. Wow. Wow. That is absolutely true. I, I didn't think about that. Uh, all right. So so you add Michael Bruce, uh, and, and I, w- I want to talk about his side of things, because I think, you know, he kind of brings uh, some interesting pieces, especially on the songwriting. Is that right? Uh, exactly. We had uh, we were getting really big as the spiders. I mean, man, we were packing yeah, the, the place. VIP the VIP club owner made you move, change your name from, thankfully, from the earwigs <laughs> right. to the spiders. Yeah. yeah, he said, "I'll hire you, but you got to do something about that name." <laughs> yeah, I love we once, you we, moved up in the bug world, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, we once uh, played at a Shakey's Pizza Parlor and. And the guy came and decided he wasn't going to give us our free pizza, which was the deal for playing there. And he said he wasn't going to give us our free pizza because customers were leaving because they lost their appetite because of the name Earwigs on the bass drum. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, now we were the spiders, and we had a stage that had uh, uh, spider webs on the front of it, and we dressed with black turtlenecks, and and we had our own stage at one end of the room, and the other end of the room was the headliner stage. So all these bands would come through. Uh, We opened for the Yardbirds in uh, 1966, September 4th, and we opened for band Love and Spoonful, uh, Bobby Fuller 4, all kinds of all kinds of bands that were coming up in L.A. Uh, would play. So they'd play at that end of the room, and the lights would be on down on their stage, and the spider sanctum would be dark. Mm-hmm. And then when they would finish, then all of a sudden lights would start flickering in the spider sanctum, and the lights would fade on the main stage, and the audience would simply turn around, and here were the spiders. So <laughs> so it was a, a awesome. already- great time. Uh, we already had all kinds of theatrics. We were doing crazy stuff, trying to do something different every set. I mean, we would come out on one show and and have uh, toilet paper wrapped around Vince so he looks like a mummy. And then we'd throw toilet paper rolls into the crowd, and we had uh, a show where... Oh, and we had a toilet on stage. We, they were remodeling the bathroom. That's how we got the idea for that show. Hey, let's take that. <laughs> and, yeah, and another time we we. Uh, they yeah remodeling the bathroom there was an iron bathtub in there with uh, iron feet you know mm-hmm. and the thing weighed a ton but we decided uh, uh Vince was going to be in the front pointing forward like Washington crossing the Delaware and we would heave ho this thing out to the stage and then do the show and then he'd get back in we'd heave ho it back after the show so we do uh, our our thing was we were going to do one thing in this show tonight only and if somebody goes home and says oh you got to see these guys they do this thing with the bathtub and then when they came it'd be something completely different and so we had to come up with something new 
every night we had no budget, you know, it'd be, you know, grabbing the tires out of the back alley or whatever, you know, but it had to be a different show every night. (laughs) So the theatricality of, uh, of Alice Cooper started very early then. It actually started in, uh, 1964 Halloween. We did the, uh, the earwigs, the first show that we actually did where we played our, had learned to play our own instruments, all of us was, uh, the pit and the pendulum. We had a guillotine. We had a coffins that Alice and I made out of refrigerator boxes and painted and tombstones. And we had a guy that looked like a ghoul with makeup and stuff that would come out of the coffin and stuff. So, uh, yeah, from the very beginning, it was, let's incorporate art into a band. So that's, that's what we always did. How were you guys as a cover band? We were pretty darn good. <laughs> In fact, we were uh, pretty darn good. Yeah, <laughs> I think when you open for uh, for the Yardbirds uh, as an homage to them, you played all their songs, right? Right. That's how that's how green behind the ears we were. We thought we thought we would do. We didn't even know uh, that much about them except this friend of ours had brought over uh, an album. Glenn, uh, Glenn Buxton's friend uh, Mike Fuss brought an album over and and played it and it's this band the Yardbirds. so glenn and i learned their songs and we all learned their songs and the next thing you know we're going to be doing a show with the Yardbirds, and we think oh good let's play their songs you know and we we had no clue you know we go backstage and <laughs> meet them and stuff and like they were surprised uh alice uh told me and and i've talked to jeff beck about this uh, myself, but Jeff Beck claims that he remembers that because he said they were, you know, new to America. They were flying into Phoenix, Arizona. They'd never even seen a cactus before, oh, yeah. and they're thinking nobody's going to have a clue. And then the opening band plays their song. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> that, <right. laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, and so uh, let's see. So yeah, Jeff Beck was the guitar player at that time, and uh, yep. what, is it is it the, is it uh, that Jimmy Page is the bass player at that? At that uh, this was after that gig. Oh, this okay. was uh, yeah. This was like uh, well, oh, that, maybe that even was in Hollywood when you when you guys hooked up again. No, that was when we played with Led Zeppelin at the Whiskey. But the other one with uh, Jimmy Page involved was in Tucson, Arizona, and oh. we weren't playing on the bill that time. It was the the Young Rascals, the Original Animals, and the Yardbirds with Beck and Page playing bass. Yeah, that was one of my favorite shows I've ever seen. Oh, I, I Glenn and I were front and center with our chins on the stage right in front of uh, Jeff Beck's box amp, and our hair was blowing from the volume. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we got the, the core band just about set, but we need to introduce the Smith family. So let's start with the Golden God and uh, your rhythm devil partner, Neil Smith. Uh, and as we as we said, he, he came from a, a surf band, I think. And In fact, the first time you see him, uh, he's playing Wipeout, isn't that right? Well, uh, yeah. Now, I, I kind of skipped over Michael Bruce a little bit, but he, he came in as the songwriting element and also the the singing element. So Michael, there, there was a Michael Bruce. Yeah, that was the, that was the big guy. Uh, I, I meant to say that before, but I got sidetracked. But then, okay, now Michael's in the band. And we're going to play this big back-to-school bash in Phoenix, Arizona. And I think that was in uh, 65. But 
anyway, all of the bands, there's a lot of camaraderie back then. So it was like, you know, the old Mickey Rooney movie, you know, Mrs. O'Leary needs an operation. Let's put on a show. <laughs> and so, uh, so we, all of the bands, and it probably could have been some of the guys from the tubes too. They were in various bands back then and seemed like every time you saw them, they were, they had a different lineup and a different name, but it was the same guys. Yeah. And the tubes actually turned out to be when they all said, well, let's just all be in this in one band and, and have one name. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, but anyway, so now we're going to pull all of the equipment for the good of the show. And, uh, okay, we're going to use uh, your bass amp and we'll use your guitar amp so it's kind of even for nobody's got an advantage. And so the show was rolling along really nicely because of that. I cut down on equipment switchover, and then I'm out in the audience, and Neil Smith's uh, surf band comes. And, you know, at that point, uh, the British invasion had happened, and and as far as we were concerned, surf was out, you know, it wasn't cool anymore. And so I'm in the audience and Neil decided they were going to move all of the amps and put up a drum riser and, and that's taken forever. And I'm out in the audience ranking on him. I'm going, yeah, man, what a, what a jerk, you know, he's, uh, and he's moving everything. The show's come to a screeching halt and for what wipeout. And, uh, and his sister, Cindy, was standing right in front of me and she turned around and told me he's not a jerk. He's the greatest drummer in the whole world. And I'm like, Oh my God, me and my big mouth. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Cindy is, we're talking about is your wife that you've been married to since 1974, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, it, it, what I like about um, Alice Cooper re-listening, uh, spending a lot of time re-listening uh, recently, is how special the rhythm section is to the music. So, how you know, how did you and Neil kind of lock in together? Well, um, you know, when you play together a lot, all of a sudden you find these, you find what works, and 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 with Neil, it was his willingness to experiment. We both were on the same level that way, even though Neil would go, you know, reaching out. We were very pioneering. Our Pretties for You era was all about uh, doing something that's never been done before. And there was a lot of jamming and a lot of musical exploration and a lot of trying as crazy of ideas as we could. Well, Neil would be doing, trying to find the crazy. Kind of like a Pink Floyd, uh, because that's kind of what they were doing in the psychedelic era uh, over in London, right? You know, this, uh, we met Pink Floyd. They stayed at our house on their first tour. And uh, when we ran into them and, and uh, we found out about their music actually in Topanga Canyon, because, uh, Alice and I had read this interview with Paul McCartney and somebody asked him what British groups were happening that he liked. And he said, Pink Floyd. So we mailed away to England and got their album. But still, uh, at that time, we felt like we, uh, we were exploring outer space and all of a sudden we see somebody else's out there. It wasn't like the influence wasn't direct. Right. Same with the mothers of invention. You know, yeah. there were... There were definitely similarities, but that wasn't our influence. Our influence was art and uh, television shows, horror films, Vincent Price and all that kind of stuff. And just 
other people with a coincidence more than, you know, people think that we copied uh, Screaming Lord Such. All we knew about him was he had a Rolls Royce painted with a Union Jack flag, you know. <laughs> we didn't know what, all the stuff that he did. Right, right. Yeah, and also uh, uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins. We had never seen him on television or anything. We knew the song, but we didn't know what he did. Uh, but uh, but anyway, so Neil Smith would play these parts that would be the craziest drum part he could come up with. I'd be over here doing the most avant-garde bass part I could come up with, and we'd we'd be pretty distracting in the a rehearsal room, really, but whenever it would start coming together, all of a sudden he would start being influenced by what I was doing and vice versa, and all of a sudden, oh, I like that bass drum part. I'm going to emphasize that kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden, when it would start to come together, it would start start to sound like a locomotive was coming through. So mm. that's that's how we did. We always, all the way through, you know, still today, if we set down the right song, that's how we go about it. You're still you know, we try. Well, you have to. You want to do something as different as possible. This is this is my way of thinking, and I think Neil lines up. You want to do something as different as possible, but then you kind of have to pull in the reins on things that aren't supporting the song. Of course. Yeah. So in the end, you want to support the song. So, so that's what we would do, and uh, it was. We played together so much that we didn't even have to look at each other to know what the other one was going to do, even though Neil is really good at always giving cues to everybody, even when they're not necessary. Just, you know, it's a safety net. Oh, when, yeah. when everybody when we played in, in England, you know, we played those songs a million times, and still Neil will count down each part, make sure everybody's... Uh, knows where you are because on a big stage with loud amps and stuff uh it's easy to derail uh yeah it's not not too dissimilar from uh you know a, uh, a, an athletic event uh same sort of thing you know you you guys are all talking to each other to make sure everybody is moving forward in the in the in the same direction uh so um okay so you guys are big man on campus in phoenix but the West is the best. So let's move you out to L.A. I think it took about a year for you guys to make a permanent move. So how did that materialize? Well, we uh, basically, a friend of ours, Dick Christian, was kind of our uh, guru uh, for the spiders. And he was always uh, on board. He would be the one that wrote down all of our crazy ideas as we brainstorm what to do next. And well, thank he, God somebody was there to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right, because they were gone out the window as soon as we were done talking about it. <laughs> uh, the good the good ones stuck, though, and that's how it worked. We just brainstormed everything, and no matter what somebody said, everybody would try to top it until it either got so ridiculous that there's no way it was practical, or it'd be something great, but we couldn't afford to do it. That's usually what happened. Or it would be something that we could do. So, so the three outcomes. But still, we had uh, honed our sharpness for being able to do that. And mm-hmm. Dick would write them down, and then he would be uh, an element to make it more likely that it would become tangible. But still, he went out to L.A. and now he's telling us, "Hey, you guys got to come to Hollywood, man. You got to see what's going on there." 
and we're like, hey, man, we're, we got a song number 11 on the radio here. We can play anywhere and play Don't Blow Your Mind. The, the girls are jumping up and down screaming, you know? And yeah. He's like, yeah, but you're big fish uh, in a little pond. So, right. so we went out there and, of course, walking down Sunset Boulevard on a weekend, and it was like crazy cool. You know, so exciting, so colorful, a million different things going on. You look over here, the birds are playing. You look over there, the doors are playing. And it was like, uh, okay, we got to do this. And we didn't have any money. I mean, the first time we went to L.A., we all jumped in a truck. We didn't even see how much money we had. We got there. We didn't have, we had pocket change, and we slept in Griffith Park on the benches in the park. Right. <laughs> That's how, I mean, when everything we Rough. did was so focused yeah. on the band, mm-hmm. it was so focused on, okay, now we're going to go to LA and, uh, and see what that's all about. And so we jumped in the truck and went to LA, you know, <laughs> uh, but it was exciting, but you know, they told us, uh, there were over 3000, bands there all looking for work and even though because of the way we dressed and because of our avant-garde music we were kind of the the brunt of a lot of jokes for the more serious bands as they saw themselves uh you know buffalo springfield and stuff uh that was what they thought was happening and here comes these guys that are uh, you know, look like transvestites or whatever. <laughs> well, LA, and, LA always had uh, a bit of a professional sheen to it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I can imagine you guys uh, seem like fish out of water. Yeah, it did. But come on, it's the glitziest uh, town, Hollywood, you know, and, and we were too outrageous for Hollywood. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but but we did work more than most bands. I mean, we we did a lot of gigs considering... If you compare it to other bands that went there to make it, even this great band from Phoenix, the Vibratos, went out there, you know, and it's hard to, you can get sucked into this lifestyle and never make it out there. So, yeah. Oh, so yeah. we were yeah. we were able to tread waves and, and even get, uh, you know, a couple of albums while we were there. So, so, uh, so it was an important move for us because now all of a sudden we really are tackling the, brick, the big time. Yeah, so how does a 1960s band living the hippie freak dream of peace and love in L.A. go to becoming the most popular and hated band in America built on erotic juvenile humor and faux necrophilia within five years? Yeah, well, okay, there were the hippies and there were the freaks. Right. We were were more like freaks, even though we made fun of everybody, including ourselves, but... Did you, know, did, did you know that when you came out from Phoenix, or was it something uh, oh, yeah. that you picked up on and you said, oh, I want to I want to follow this? Which, you know, is, the freak movement is a subculture, uh, and a lot of people don't know that. It's, uh, um, uh, gosh, it was... I've, well, it was more artistic, and that's how we kind of, uh, we related to that because, to that. Okay. because uh, that's kind of what we did, you know, so, and also we met the GTOs walking down the street, and said, well, the circus is in town. <laughs> and, We're not uh, the only ones. All right. There yeah. So so we had dreams all the way at the beginning. When we first started, Alice and I had powerful imaginations. And as far as saying that we were the artist in the group, we talked these other guys, Michael and Glenn and 
uh, uh, Neil into we Al, uh, Alice and I were very we were so into what we were doing that the uh, people that we worked with they saw it's futile to try to go against them you know so mm-hmm. so they would all of a sudden they got into the the mindset of this concept and everybody was on board it was all of us doing this artistic vision that and and I mean enough believed in it enough to uh go without food and stuff to and go against everybody making fun of us so so uh but we had this dream that we're going to set the world on fire with this artistic vision so it's almost like we already imagined that we had made it long before we ever did and we also had that uh that taste of success with uh the spiders having the hit single so yeah, in Phoenix, right, right. So you, yeah, kinda, you knew the you knew the process, and and at the same time, it sounds like you you just weren't going to give yourself a plan B. It was well, uh, was, well. Was, our problem was we Michael uh, was encouraging us to to start writing our own music, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's that's what we started doing. But first, we wanted to we were good at being a garage band. You know, yeah. we could do that really well, mm-hmm. uh, but. Garage bands were, you know, a dime a dozen in L.A., it seemed, you know. So, okay, now we're going to do something artistic, and we're going to come up with our own style that nobody else has. You know, the competition was heavy then. You had the Beatles, you had Hendrix, you had Stones. Everybody else in the world was happening. So, uh, And also back in those days, uh, there were quite a variety of styles of rock and roll happening. So You felt you know, like you had to push the envelope then. We had to push the envelope, and we had a lot of people to convince, you know, that what we were doing was was good because people hated what we were doing. I mean, we we had the worst reviews, and oh my God, it was brutal. Uh, but oh but yeah, we believed- it, it is it is known you guys could uh, clear a room uh, pretty quickly back in the day. Yeah, we had done that a couple of times. We we followed Aretha Franklin once and cleared the room. <laughs> And everybody's saying, "Oh my God!" You know, followed Aretha Franklin. We followed Aretha when "Respect" was a hit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she. Well, that's what we were saying, and and, you know, and then we come out. It was a revolving stage, so when uh, it was nonstop music at the Hullabaloo. Oh yeah. And and this giant stage that was built in the 30s for dancing girls and everything well you would be behind the curtain and when when the other band that was out facing the audience would finish their set they'd play this break song and the only way you could play at the Hullah Blue was to learn that break song because then we had to join in and be playing the same song and then the the giant stage would revolve and then the other band, when they were backstage, they'd stop playing, and you would finish the song, and then do your show, and then do the break song again, and then that's how you would the go off. Guy. So, right, right, right. so well, we the place was packed to the rafters, you know, and and we're backstage, all tuned up and ready to go play to this great audience. And as the thing turned, all we saw was two lines for the exits. <laughs> And uh, everybody's like, oh, my God, who who decided we should do this gig? I said, look on the bright side. We can always say that Aretha opened for us. (laughs) Rest in peace, Aretha. Rest in peace. (laughs) Oh, man, she was good. Oh, 
My God, yeah. We okay. I, I want to explore a little bit more the the heart of the theatricality and and, and the purpose. So, uh, I mean, you guys are in, undoubtedly the originators of shock rock, um, certainly here in America. I I'd say it's fair to say Black Sabbath is across the pond thinking similarly like you guys. So, my question is: is it appears this was just something that evolved over time and and not not actually designed from the get-go. No. When we were floundering with uh, finding our music style in L.A., uh, Alice was also floundering a bit with uh, being able to face an audience without, you know, when we would do a Stones cover, even though Alice didn't pretend he was Mick Jagger, he kind of had that shield. The swag. You know, Uh Uh we're doing somebody else's song. You know, it's not really me. Right. And then when we started doing our own stuff, Alice, all of a sudden, we'd do gigs, and he'd spend half the show with his back to the audience. And we're like, wow, what's with that? So I decided that we should, on Pretties for You, every song, Alice should be a different character that belongs to the song. So nobody likes me. He'd be the little kid singing to his friends that nobody likes me, and it's all my fault. And then uh, Levity Ball, he would see dancing ghosts that nobody else could see, and then we had this song called Fields of Regret where Alice would play this dark, heavier character. Well, that was the one thing that seemed to be relatable to a lot of people that they would stay to the end of the set just for that song. The people that, that weren't, right. the people that didn't get in the exit line stayed for Fields of Regret and that character. So when we dropped that song, I said, you know, I hate to drop that character. That's the only thing we've got working for us here. And so we should do more songs for that. Well, we were still learning how to write. And uh, so, but the seed was planted then that Alice should become this dark character. But it took all the way uh, on. uh, We tried to do a, a dark song, heavy song that would accommodate that on Lay Down and Die Goodbye on uh, easy action album, but it was just too, it was too avant-garde. It didn't, it wasn't right. But by the time we got to love it to death, I had written black juju and we had ballad of Dwight Fry. Neil wrote hallowed be my name. And now all of a sudden we're really designing our songs and are able to write them to as vehicles for Alice to develop this character. So it took a while, you know, uh, Everything we did, we were touring constantly. You know, we'd we'd start writing a song, and then we'd go out and do five gigs and come back and try to figure out where we left off. Right, right, right. Oh, that, okay, that makes sense. That that helps me understand how the theatricality all came about in that, that you know, finding the characters. So, so uh, Alice, Vince, you know, wasn't wasn't born a natural showman, you know, and it was it was easier for him to put on these masks, these costumes that then uh, gave him uh, the ability to, uh, to, to, to take it to another level then. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Right. It's, it's interesting too, because it's sort of correlated with the changing of Alice's voice. Mm-hmm. Because when we were younger, his voice was very nasally, you know, like, like he used to always joke that uh, is uh, they, they formed the hood ornament of a Pontiac after his nose. <laughs> but but when his voice got uh, deeper as he got older, uh, then yeah. it got gra- gra- more gravelly. Uh-huh. And uh, his and then his uh, by then it, his uh, stage confidence was starting to develop because 
you can hear some of the tapes from live performances in the earlier days where Alice will say something and it sounds very timid on the microphone. Yeah. You know, and then there's a point where there's a point where all of a sudden now he's got these songs that support the character and now he's envisioning the character and I got the idea for the eye makeup in New York City from a giant poster of a clown at the New York City Center, a ballet uh, promotion thing for the Joffrey Ballet. And so now he had the spider eyes. So now it's kind of like, a real okay, name. now yeah. now he's got a uh, character that he can sink his teeth mm-hmm. into. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and then the confidence set in. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Frank Zappa. I believe uh, that if anybody is a fan of Zappa, I I think they can understand uh, early Alice Cooper better. Um, But Frank signed you guys uh, for his own label, Straight, and the first two albums, Pretties for You and Easy Action, are on that label. So um, I think it's the the GTOs, Girls Together Outrageously, that get things going by by helping you guys develop this look and introducing you to Frank, right? Well, you know, we had the... We had shiny fabrics and stuff when we were in Phoenix. What the GTOs did was when we got... When we were in Phoenix, we would go to the local thrift store and shop in the women's section. And when we got to L.A., then we didn't know where the thrift store was. So the GTOs took us to the thrift store. So... That's pretty much the look that they gave us, even though if you see some early pictures of Alice where he looks like Noel Redding, uh, Miss Christine, who was Alice's hand-holding girlfriend from the GTOs, she had uh, uh, ratted up his hair. But that's the look that the GTOs uh, gave Alice. They made him look like Noel Redding. Yeah, my wife, Cindy, is the one that really started finding all of the, the chrome fabrics and designing all of the costumes and everything. But they were all friends. The GTOs asked Cindy to be a GTO, and, and then that was right when the band uh, was leaving L.A. and migrated to Detroit. So, so it never actually happened officially, but you know, we're, we were friends with the GTOs. They were the ones that when we would play at the Cheetah Club and everybody would be at the exit lines, the GTOs would be there front and center, jumping up and down and screaming for us and everything. And like we played the Whiskey A Go-Go with uh, uh, Led Zeppelin and uh, Neil Smith did a big drum solo that ended with him falling backwards into the crowd. And he landed on the GTOs and practically squashed him. You know? <laughs> so, so you know, we were good friends and continue to be. I'm in touch with uh, Pamela once in a while. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and Mercy is, is still around too. So, uh, we we were kindred spirits and. The GTOs lived at Frank Zappa's, Frank Zappa's house, the log cabin that belonged to the cowboy star Tom Mix in the right. silent era. And uh, the GTOs lived in the basement. And there was a one-lane bowling alley, and the and they said that Tom Mix had buried his horse under the lane. What? <laughs> That's what they used to say. <laughs> I'm surprised you guys didn't dig him up and use him in the show. I don't, who knows if it was there or not, but it, it was always, you couldn't go in there without thinking about it. <laughs> uh, but the GTOs, uh, Miss Christine was the babysitter for Frank and Gail Zappa. 
And Moon Yuna was just a little crawling baby at the time. And so Alice and I would walk all the way from Topanga all the way up to Laurel Canyon to Sapa's house. And Alice would sit and hold hands with Christine and and try to talk her into getting Sapa to come and see us play. And I'd, I'd watch uh, baby Moon Yunick crawl across the floor, and if she's headed for the ashes in the cold fireplace, I'd turn her around and aim her a different <laughs> direction. And, uh, and finally, you know, Sapa uh, promised to come see us three times. And something came up each time. The third time, he even showed up, but he had to leave before we played. So now Alice was really ready to get Christine in a headlock. And and she said, uh, she made the mistake of saying, oh, well, Frank will be home tomorrow. Okay, we're coming over tomorrow. No, 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 he doesn't like people to come over. And we're like, uh, no, we're coming over. She said, okay, tentatively, come over at 9 o'clock, and, uh, and I'll call you if it's not okay. All right. Well, by the time we got back to walking back to Topanga through Malibu and everything, Alice had turned this all into it's definitely on for nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's the first time the band, we were there. We were knocking on the door until Miss Christine opened the door and went into shock. And we marched in with our equipment and set it up right outside the Frank and Gail were asleep in their bedroom, and we set up all of our equipment, drums, amps, and everything right outside the bedroom door and started playing. That is Paul's. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd shoot somebody if they did that to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Frank, the door opened, and Frank's hand came out and motioned for us to stop, and then he stuck his head out and said, Let me have some coffee, and I'll listen. Oh. And that's how we got a record deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, you know, um, uh, we brought up Cindy a couple of times. Uh, she is working at a clothing store uh, in Hollywood. And uh, I want to bring up uh, what I think is a huge moment for the band. And that is the luck of getting Shep Gordon and Joe Greenberg. In our main series of rock history, uh, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, we are constantly harping that the luck of a great manager is essential to really making it. Dylan and Janice had Grossman. Uh, the Who have Lambert and Stamp, uh, Peter Grant for Zeppelin, etc. Uh, is it fair to say these guys helped you survive the time it took to become a huge success? And oh, how absolutely. Yeah. So how instrumental were they? Well, um, they weren't really managers, you know, when, when no, they came when into... Right, right. They were yeah, well, when they came into Cindy's store, Inside Outside Boutique, Cindy and her best friend, Linda, who they're still best friends to today, when you hear them talk about the day Joe and Shep came in, well, Sapa said, I'll sign you, but you do you guys have a manager? And we're like, no. And he said, well, you have three days to find a manager, or maybe my guy could... Herbie Cohen could manage you, but it'd be better if I want him to manage me. So find your own manager. You'll get your own. And Cindy found them. She They came in the shop and she said, hey, are you guys managers? Uh, because my uh, Frank Zappa is interested in signing my brother's band. Well, they weren't managers, but they told her that they were. They told her that they managed the left bank. And uh, uh, so, so the next day, Cindy brought them up to Topanga Canyon, and they listened to his play, and uh, and because of Zappa being interested, they agreed that we would uh, 
they would come to the Lenny Bruce show at the Cheetah Club, which was the one where everybody walked out on us. Frank Zappa was there, and our potential managers were there when everybody walked out. (laughs) (laughs) And thank God Frank Zappa thought that was cool, and our managers thought the power the power to be able to do that to an audience. We just need to harness, like Frankenstein's yeah. monster, monster, yeah. right? We just need to harness this power. That's yeah. They, they were very instrumental in our career. I mean, uh, Joe was the guy that was always on the phone talking to record execs and telling them about this new band and all of this stuff. And, uh, Shep was more of the guy who would, uh, be thinking about what we could do, you know, and, and we we would do anything to get into the regular magazines as opposed to a mention in the rock magazines, you know. So yeah, yeah. so we did things like uh, we we did this gig where we wore clear plastic pants <laughs> because we wanted to get arrested. <laughs> yeah, well, that didn't work no, out too well say, because. Well, the gig the gig happened right down the street from the Classic Cat Strip Club, and there were a bunch of strip clubs. So who cared if we had clear plastic? <laughs> it was just another strip club tonight. Okay, all right. Yeah. Besides, they steamed up right away, and so you couldn't see anything anyway. <laughs> uh, but we would do stuff like that, and and we would we actually did a festival, and we showed up, and when we pulled up to the the guard at the gate, he said, uh, okay, who are you? And we're like Alice Cooper. And he's like, uh, you're not on the list. And, and Joe Greenberg says, who's on the list? And he says, uh, Joseph Cotton Blues Band. He said, that's us. And he goes, oh, okay. <laughs> and he checked it out. Right. All right. Well, I didn't find out until decades later. We went up on stage and we started playing. And then the guy who was running the festival came out after about five songs and pulled the plug on us, screaming, because what I found out is we weren't even booked to be on that show. Oh, shit. We just, we crashed the party and ended up on stage playing to the <laughs> crowd. <laughs> well, that's Joe and Chef. That's, I mean, we, we, we had these... Do. Yep. Yeah, we had these New York Wheeler dealers, and and uh, and we and the thing is, the their creativity toward how to get attention for a band was equivalent to our creativity for writing music and making our image and all right. that. Right. It all worked, and and the other thing that we all had that was strongly in common is that. You couldn't. You couldn't tell us we couldn't do anything. If you told us we couldn't do something, we were going to do it. Right, right. right. <laughs> and there was, and no, we can't do it. Wasn't in our vocabulary. <laughs> so two albums in, and it's not really working in L.A. So you guys moved to Detroit, where things pick up, uh, at least on the road. Uh, and uh, now you're away from the sun-soaked L.A. hippy dippy vibe to the harsher conditions of the industrial Midwest. And you guys are playing with bands like the MC5 and the Stooges, far more aggressive rock and roll than anything happening on the West Coast at the time. So how did that reshape your sound and act? Oh, absolutely. I mean, our band, if you look at our albums uh, and look at where we lived, the influence is obvious. You know, now we land in Detroit, and you've got the Stooges who, in my opinion invented uh punk yeah and the mc5 who were over the top but man it was uh high energy if you did a ballad 
half the audience would leave. You know, it, it had to be. Right. Uh, it was only yeah, they'd run you out of town on a rail. <laughs> you, it was all fist in the air, and the audiences were as true blue as anywhere. You know, San Francisco had their following, but. Detroit had had an amazing following as well. It would be the same bands. It could be, you know, Mitch Ryder and uh, uh, oh, on and on. So you had the MC5, you had the Stooges. Now, what are we going to do? There's no way we can compete with them by overpowering them. Uh, so that was the catalyst that made us go heavier on our theatrics. Uh-huh. Okay, well, Iggy can jump in the audience and, and start a fight. And uh, so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to electrocute our singer <laughs> in an electric chair. <laughs> so so that's how we did it. You know, it's all of a sudden, okay, so Iggy would have this intense personality. And so we would have to follow the Stooges. And uh, how are we going to do that? Well, Alice had also an intense personality, but there was a difference difference uh uh, they were both scary in their own ways but with alice it would be more of a all of a sudden we'd shift gears and everything would get a lot more dramatic where the stooges it was basically pin the audience to the wall and keep them there for the whole set you know we would we would come out and pin them to the wall for a few rockers you know and then we'd shift gears and all of a sudden things would get heavier in a theatrical way and also our uh lighting guy charlie carnell started with us he was in high school at the same time as we were in phoenix and the lighting was very, very important to the Alice Cooper group because it, adds it to was theatrics. Oh, without doubt, it was dramatic lighting. It was yeah. more like broad Broadway uh, dramatic lighting. It wasn't rock and roll lighting. And hardly any bands had their own lights back then. I mean, Grateful Dead had people that followed them around, but but generally. Uh, we would show up with our own lights and people wouldn't know what to do. You know, the guys that worked at a venue. So now all of a sudden we take things very dark and this, these more evil conniving character would evolve, you know, where, where Iggy was scary in that you didn't want him to come and punch you in the face or something. (laughs) No, you guys were scary like a horror flick. Well, uh, well, Iggy would be coming after you. Alice would be sucking you in. <laughs> ah, that's a good way to uh, so, yeah, the the Detroit, and and it was also very cool that those uh, great established Detroit bands kind of took us under their wing and, uh, uh, you know, allowed us to be in the Motor City uh, Boys Club. Yeah. So now, now it's funny. The MC Five and the, and the Stooges hugely influential, and they get a lot of credit for what is going to happen later in the seventies. But during their actual runs, not successfully commercially, I should say. Um, but you guys meet another person that helps put Alice Cooper into the charts, and that's Bob Ezrin. Um, he goes on to legendary status, but at this moment, he's just an assistant to Jack Richardson, who's famous for producing the Guess Who. But it seems he's the one that kind of helps coalesce the sound, tightens the songwriting, and, and creates continuity in the upcoming albums, beginning with Love It to Death. 
Definitely. We, uh, at that point, we had, because of our association with Frank Zappa and because we had played at the Varsity Stadium, the Rock and Roll Revival up in Canada, and that's when Alice tossed the chicken into the crowd and uh, to the to the poor chicken's demise, the audience thought it was some kind of a collectible, I guess. And, and, and an urban legend is born. Exactly. And we didn't even know it for a few weeks. All of a sudden, we'd show up and people like, where's the chicken? You know, and we're like, what? <laughs> okay. And so we had a you, reputation. You guys are supposed to be doing horrible things with chickens. Where's the chicken? Right, right. Right. And the other thing you mentioned with Frank Zappa, the other stories that were grosser and, and whatever, and whether they were true or not, that was our our reputation preceded us yes. at that point. So we were famous, but we lacked one thing, a hit single. And even though we had a hit single way back when we were in high school, this was something that we didn't quite have a handle on. We had gotten better uh, by the time we met Bob Ezra and Michael Bruce had already written Caught in a Dream, and, and we had already developed I'm 18 and stuff. So, But I'm 18 is the perfect example. It was more like a sprawling, a longer song. If you hear any recordings of our old shows, we did that version on stage, usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so Ezra says, okay, that's going to be the single. And so the first day that we worked with him at the farm in Pontiac, Michigan, uh, the very first thing we did was, okay, let's work on, he called it, I'm edgy. He had seen us in New York and thought, (laughs) he thought it was, Uh, yeah, because we were all, we were all very edgy that night when we performed it, but, uh, he thought it was, I'm edgy. He said, let's do, I'm edgy. We're like, uh, you mean I'm 18? And then he goes, oh, (laughs) uh, I'm edgy isn't bad though. Uh, so, Basically, it only took about maybe two hours for Ezra to say, so we'd play this organ part that had this uh, intro that would be very moody, and he'd say, we don't need that. that. Right, right. We don't need that. Let's start off with uh, just the two rounds of the chorus instrumentally, and then go into the first verse. We're like, okay. So uh, he whittled it right down and made it into a single. That Yeah. Right there on the spot. Yeah. Chopped so, into a cohesive three minutes of testosterone-fueled mixed emotions from the title character. That's right. And and that's what that's what Bob Essen brought to the table. Not only that, but he, he brought uh the ability to remember exactly where we left off the day before because we would we were just this this ever evolving machine that, uh, you know, we try to remember what we, where we left off the day before and all of a sudden just continue to change and maybe not, maybe lose some of what was good that, that we developed the day before. So Ezrin would be, no, wait a minute. No, that's not the bass drum part you were playing, Neil, that you were playing. So, so there was a lot of that. He was like our tape recorder. We had a tape recorder, but we couldn't afford tape. <laughs> right, right. But he could do it, he, he could do it by memory. So, he could do it by memory, and also he brought a uh, he brought a uh, a schooled classical uh, mindset to the songs. Like the perfect example of that is Second Coming. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, here's all of these classical lines uh, where we kind of had more strummy chords and more rock and roll. And even though we kind of there was some resistance to that 
particular song by Michael Bruce because he's like, we don't, that's not what we play. We're a rock band, you know, and, and I'm thinking, well, you know, I agree with Bob Ezrin, but, but I would never agree with an outside person, you know, against anybody in the band at the time. (laughs) And and also, you know, uh, he was outnumbered. Uh, We all liked the second coming, uh, what Bob Ezrin did to it. Where there's other songs like Caught in a Dream that Ezrin did hardly anything. And like Black Juju, he did nothing to, you know. So it really depended on the song. And that's also another tribute to Ezrin's brilliance is that he knew when to leave it alone. Right, right. So, but he added like almost like a sixth member into the group that could uh, could then take you guys out of uh, of cult status, and you know, obviously with I'm eighteen, you know, turn you guys into a pop sensation. Exactly. Now, because he had never produced a record before, uh, Warner Brothers said, "Well, well, I don't know about signing them if this guy's the producer." I'll tell you what, we'll sign the band with the uh, stipulation that Jack Richardson be in the studio for uh, Love It to Death and Killer. Uh-huh. Because because Jack Richardson had a reputation for oh, always man. getting a hit single and also bringing in albums under budget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what it was. I mean, people give... Ezra and all the credit for Love It to Death and Killer, but Jack Richardson was right there. And Just he as was much. right. He was right. well, he was good at giving Bob his reins. Yeah. And uh but but he would jump in definitely whenever something looked like it was gonna eat up any time unnecessarily or whatever. So uh we had two producers. You know, we had Bob who was the the guy who was you know, they there were two kinds of pr- producers back then. You had the song men which they were, they would actually get down in the trenches and help develop the song. And then you had the the producers, all they would do is uh, try to get the best recording of what the band was doing. Uh, Yeah, let the band be the artistic side and uh, just uh, run the dials. Right, right. Yeah, like Jimmy Iovine, who went on to be one of the biggest producers ever, you know, in the studio, Mm -hmm. working with him, he'd say, Hey, guy, he'd come out of the control room and come into the studio when we were kind of struggling around to try to get get it right. And he'd say, okay, everybody huddle together. And he'd say, we got to get something going here. We're like, well, we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to bring up the Ballad of Dwight Fry um, from that album, for Love It to Death. Uh, and uh, and talk a little bit about how the show now coalesces uh, into uh, uh, you know something that that's very manageable. Uh, and I think Cindy's the the original nurse uh, in this set piece. Uh, and for me, if aliens came to Earth and asked for a definition of Alice Cooper in one song, this is the song I'd pick. It has all the elements to get the idea across: the theatricalities there, the gothic subject. Uh, each of the musicians are on. Display. Play. It's twisted and weird enough to piss off any parent of the times. I, I think you guys really nail it in this song. Um, but the, the song becomes, like I said, the set piece to the stage show, and I believe it's still performed pretty much the same today. Can you give the diggers an explanation of the scene? Well, uh, that's the other thing Bob Ezrin brought to the table. He's like, hey guys, you know, and this is his speech before we even started working on music when we he came to our rehearsal hall in 
Pontiac, Michigan. He's like, what I saw in New York City was theatrical. What I'm hearing on your records, I'm not getting those visuals. And Michael wrote Ballad of Dwight Fry. We did it pretty much the way he wrote it. You know, I wrote my parts, and I'd come up with ideas all the time. Everything that we did was pretty much a, a five-man, and at that point became a six-man collaboration. Yeah. But, uh, but Michael, what he brought to the table pretty much stayed intact, where other things would, uh, it'd be like tossing your heart into a pool of piranha. They'd spit it. They'd spit it out, and it'd be a different song, you know. Uh, it depended on what the if the song was good, then we we all knew not to change it. But if it wasn't good, we'd change it until it was good, you know. So that's how it worked. But Bob Essen brought that. Okay, we've got a when you listen to an Alice Cooper album, you've got to see the visuals in your mind. We're like, yeah, we're we're on board with that. So that was a big part of uh, that song. Uh, it also had to do with that thing that I was talking about, uh, you know, where the Stooges would, I mean, they had like uh, dirt, you know, they had a couple of, of kind of ballady, heavy ballads. But generally, them and the MC5, it would be all full tilt, pedal to the metal, you know. And, yeah. and what we would do is like uh, when you write a story, you know, you want it to be interesting, and then it builds. And we'd, we'd come out with three or four rockers. We'd try to pick a couple of songs right up at the front of the set that if Alice's mic wasn't working, they would stand up on their own instrumentally, which came in handy on a few nights. <laughs> but, uh, but we wanted to get them rocking, establish that we're a rock band, and then we would shift gears, and then things would get very intimate. The lighting would be more dramatic, and then... Ballad of Dwight Fry was the perfect example of that because we'd take it right down until in these rowdy rooms in Detroit, we'd bring it down. And on some nights, not all nights, you could hear a pin drop. You know, everybody'd be watching Alice and the spotlight would be on him. And he's looking around doing the, the thing that he did with uh, Levity Ball where he's seeing ghosts that nobody else sees, you know. Mm -hmm. He still uses that in the set and on, on Ballad of Dwight Fry. And, uh, you know, we decided that he's going to be in a straight jacket, and, which back in those days, it was just a men's white dress shirt that we put on backwards, backwards and tied right, it behind right. him. Right. And we had no money. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Cindy was the reluctant nurse. We had to get her in a headlock. But we tried to gr get somebody to volunteer from the audience. And if we couldn't find anybody, then Cindy had to do it. And. Uh, and it's funny too, because we had a nurse's hat initially, but we lost it. Every time we do, it's time to do the nurse or time to go on stage or go, I can't find the nurse's hat. So I would grab a piece of paper and I would fold it and, and then I'd take some red, uh, duct tape and make a cross on the front of it. And it seemed, I got so good at making those, Voila, I could whip them out. <laughs> yeah, so it was, you know, it was the all of that. But, again, right. But, but see, again, it's that, the importance of that lighting. Because, yeah. okay, yeah. It's, it's a friggin' uh, paper hat, you know, but we've got, now we've got like this lighting that makes it look dramatic. So uh, that's what it was all about. Now we're going to pull people into this story, into this character, and and the nurse is 
is mean to him. He's like in an asylum. And then he retaliates and kills the nurse. Okay, well, of course, he kills somebody, so he's got to pay. And so so then we'd electrocute him. And then so after this whole dramatic thing that would lead up to this this, uh, hanging or whatever we would do to our poor singer, uh, uh, then all of a sudden... All the lights go on, confetti coming down, and all of a sudden, everything's okay. Your hero's okay. He paid his resurrection, right? Yeah, he paid his debt to society. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it worked really well. It depended on the night. We had hecklers, and we had a lot of people that weren't ready for that kind of theatrics, you know. And and we would have, you know, some hostility. You know, we had people throwing stuff at us all the time, and. It got pretty dangerous on uh, a lot of occasions, actually. Glenn got hit in the knee with a hammer one oh, time. Yeah, and, yeah had to go to the uh, Somebody yeah. threw the uh, CO2 tank uh, into the drums and smashed the drums. Neil got a dart in his back one night and stuff <laughs> like that. So, so uh, you know, we would throw stuff into the audience. Our Our concept was, how can they not like us if they're part of the show? Yeah. So let's let's get these weather balloons and we'll put stuff in them and bounce them out into the crowd or we'll throw feathers into the crowd. And so, in other words, we're breaking down the barrier between artists and audience and making them part of the show. And all not, of the not things too dissimilar we, to a, like a Flaming Lips uh, concert these days. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I spoke to the uh, music people at uh, the university in oklahoma city and flaming lips uh derrick brown guitar player uh they work out of there so so i did this thing i spoke to the crowd and derrick brown had helped set it up i didn't know him i just met him when i got there and uh anyway so he says oh so do you like the flaming lips and i'm like yeah but you know i i don't think i have any of the albums and by the time i got home i had this big box full of every album and every t-shirt and everything <laughs> I, I became an instant flaming lips fan but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's definitely about the show and about engaging the audience and getting the audience to participate. Uh, which, to your point, yeah, how could uh, how could you go wrong from there? Well, we went wrong sometimes because we throw <laughs> we throw feathers at the audience and they throw cans full of beer back and <laughs> not a fair exchange. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, our image was sinister. You know, and that's the difference between us and the Mothers of Invention. They did some theatrical stuff, but it was funny. You know, it would be uh, Don Preston drinking the the beaker that had the dry ice in it and doing a Jekyll and Hyde thing and then doing a crazy solo, that kind of stuff. It had tongue-in-cheek humor. Well, we had tongue-in-cheek humor, but, but we delivered it. But there was nobody smiling in our show. We were, <laughs> we were all sinister. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the difference. That made what we were doing more threatening. And, uh, and that, uh, and even though well, you were true, putting that energy out, so it's no surprise that every once in a while you would get that energy back. Well, we would get it back. Uh, we would get the negative part of the energy back from the people that only bought into the 
sinister image. The people that were the true fans that got it realized that there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff going on here. You know, it's it's all all for the fun. And, uh, uh, you know, but... It made it interesting. We kept uh, the show kept evolving. Our goal was still just like back at the VIP of we were ready to incorporate anything that wasn't bolted down into the show. You know, like we had we brought out the tires again, rolling tires across the stage and throwing garbage cans. And and next thing you know, we came up with uh, Gutter Cat versus the Jets and turned into a West Side Story kind of a thing. So. So we were always looking to surprise the audience and give them the unexpected. So the next album was Killer with the the hit Under My Wheels, where the lead character runs over his girlfriend. Such nice boys. Um, I believe this was a a big contribution by yourself. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Buxton used to always say, we don't do sappy girl songs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I had this song and I, I knew to present it to the band properly and have it have a chance with them was to get Glenn to learn the guitar part so I could play the bass part and sing it. Right. And so I was teaching the song to Glenn in my bedroom. We were sitting on the floor and and so I go, oh yeah, it's called uh, Under My Wheels and and it's about a guy that uh, goes to pick up a girl and he goes, we don't do any sappy girl songs. I go, but he runs over her <laughs> and he goes, Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. And so this, yeah, this is actually based from a true story because when I was back in high school uh, and I was first learning how to drive and, and I had a stick and I was driving on a three way, three lane road that had cars on both sides of me. And I was very nervous and I was trying to just uh, focus straight ahead and stay in my lane. And, and all, I hear all this uh, honking, and I look over, and there's a carload of girls, and this, there's this girl that I really liked is in the car. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is not impressive that I'm, like, too afraid to look at her. And drive I'm, at the I'm, same time, right, right. So, so that simple thing, you know, that's, that's where songs that's come where from. That's came from, okay. Uh, so, so basically, the, I, the idea is that he's going to show the girl his new car, and now he can drive, and he's going to take her to the drive-in. But what he doesn't realize is she's already standing out on the sidewalk, and he accidentally hits her. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all in fun. Oh, you uh, you made uh, many uh, teenage dreams come true, uh, just uh, like myself. So uh, I love that song. Uh, I think it's important to say right here that um, uh, by now, like uh, many other rock bands that are playing uh, outside the quote unquote authenticity attitude or or writing uh, adult themes uh, that are favored by the critics. Uh, Alice Cooper is not. (laughs) You guys really never got the respect of the rock intelligentsia from back in the day. Um, But I want to point out that many of the punkers who would be favored by these same critics uh, look to Alice Cooper, and Killer in particular is a very influential album for them. Well, um, one thing about Killer that changed a lot of people's attitude toward us is that, you know, there was a lot of this, oh, they do the, they hide behind theatrics because they can't play. And, and we had a lot of that. So we decided, okay, we're going to write a song that they can't say that anymore. And Halo of Flies is the one that did it. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, Halo of Lies was released as a single in Holland and went to number one. Uh, but all of a sudden now we had a lot of people said, oh, they can play. I get it. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> I'm surprised that would be a thing. I mean, you know, granted, I mean, you, you, you are existing in the period of the progressive rock uh, era. So, you know, you do have, uh, you know, bands like uh, Yes and Genesis and, and then the jazz rock side. Of Mahal, focus so with Hocus Pocus, focus, focus, roundabout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, no, you know, again, uh, you know, re-listening to these songs, there's there's some great playing on there. So, but uh, but I know Killer is uh, is favored by uh, Johnny Rotten as one of his favorite uh, albums. Yeah, but you know, also he says the scariest song he ever heard was Looney Tune, which was off of School's Out. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. John's always been a big Alice Cooper fan, and you know, I like people who admit their influences. We always did. And there's other bands that, you know, don't admit their influences and it annoys me, but, <laughs> but I like him. And, uh, killer, I think, uh, was the first album where we walked into the studio feeling our oats because, uh, even though we knew love it to death, the songs were together and it was going to be our best album by far. We still, we thought, we thought Pretty's for You and Easy Action were going to, you know, go to the moon. And and, and they did. And so now we're going in a little, yeah, gunshot, yeah, twice bitten. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but now, killer, okay, now, now we we're feeling our oats and we're confident. So, uh, so that shows on that album. And also because it was still the band predominantly, it was. It was the band making the decisions and all of the musical stuff and everything was was still in our hands. So uh, so that also, you know, we were firing on all cylinders. And, yeah, you really were. And, and, you know, even though still we were doing two albums a year plus two different stage shows a year to go with each album. And, and we were out there so much that, you know, we'd go in the studio and record a little bit and go out and then come back and record a little bit more and that kind of stuff. So, so, uh, yeah, with we that, were, I mean, you, you're, you're, you are definitely in, on your way to superstardom and all that comes with that good and bad. Uh, in the book, you, you mentioned many highlights and, and our diggers will get all the details, uh, uh, reading the book. Uh, but I want to focus on coming back to LA where, you know, first you were treated, you know, like crap. And now you're treated by Warner Brothers as conquering heroes and given a lavish and decadent party. And then most importantly, you guys get to play the Hollywood Bowl. That must have been quite a triumph. Oh, absolutely. Oh, man. That was that was like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. We really made it. We're, 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 we're really something now. Right. Yeah. But you know, Hollywood was like that. There would be, you know, Clint Eastwood would be the guy hanging out down at the taco stand. And next thing you know, he's a big star, yeah. you know? So, <laughs> so it was common in LA, but for us, it was definitely, you know, here Warner brothers. So this, outlandish party at the uh, ambassador room 
and uh, uh, and it's got everything. It's got giant ice sculpture of Porky Pig. It's got celebrities galore and the giant cake that Miss Mercy of the GTOs pops out of. <laughs> and uh, so so that was Warner Brothers saying, "Okay, these guys are legit." You're that was our that yeah. was our announcement to L.A. Okay, uh, you know, eat crow. <laughs> right. And then uh, the Hollywood Bowl was the first time that I finally said, you know what, we made it because uh, because we had so many detractors, you know, along the lines, even no matter how big of a crowd we played to, there'd always be, you know, a bunch of people putting us down. So, so I'm like, okay, well, we played the Hollywood Bowl now. So it was an exciting night. Elton John was there. Elton John was just... He was uh, he was so excited about the show. He came backstage after we played, and and he kept kept going on and on about the how we dressed. And Cindy told him, uh, or you know, I told him, well, here's Cindy made him, and and so you know, we influenced Elton the way he dressed <laughs> changed after oh, that yes, night. He did, yeah, yeah. You know, we dropped the panties not, from the helicopters. Responsible for the Donald Duck outfit, right? <laughs> no, 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 not that one. Far. Yeah, yeah, uh, that one. <laughs> that had to be hot too. Uh, yeah, no, not that one. Uh, more like you know. Well, a lot of people all of a sudden. I, you know, we we had our influences, like I said, that we're not afraid to uh, tell people about. But little Richard was dressing pretty flamboyant, oh, yes. of course. You know, Liberace. Uh, you know, yeah. there would be big billboards on Sunset Boulevard. There, one in particular, you come around this sharp corner, and then you see this giant billboard, and it and it was Liberace holding a candelabra with real fire coming out of the top of the candles. Yeah, and oh, he had on a okay, like gas uh, gas lines up to yeah, uh, like a yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly, real flames, <laughs> and like those car dealerships that have the little sequins that uh, move in the wind. Uh, his outfit was covered in sequins, so yeah, you know, and also the the way the Beatles dressed on the Sergeant Pepper album, you know, all yeah. those satin yeah. things. So yeah. we had those in influences, but also it was had to do with Cindy being able to find these fabrics. You know, this chrome fabric was a pretty new thing then. Mm-hmm. So, and that chrome was tricky too, because you get sweaty and wet on stage and you're in a jumpsuit that's made out of chrome. And when you got shocked, when you weren't grounded with the microphone, you saw lightning. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it all of a sudden all of these things had uh, uh, blossomed. Mostly because, not because it took us that long to think of them. It's more like it took us that long to be able to afford to do them. Yeah, and now you can. I mean, a, a string of hit albums take over 1972 and 73 with Schools Out with an even bigger anthem than 18. Uh, Billion Dollar Babies, which went to number one on the Billboard charts, making you guys the undisputed heavyweight champion uh, with four hit singles. Uh, Hello, Hooray, Elected, uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy, and, and of course the title song. And then the the last album as a band, uh, the Muscle of Love. Um, Alice Cooper owns the early to mid 1970s uh, and then all of a sudden it's over well for the original band suddenly vince bob ezrin and shep move on without the rest of you i can't imagine the hurt you all must have felt at that time 
Well, I think we were the last to know, for one thing. I think we were kind of kept on hold uh, in case Alice Solo wasn't accepted by the public or the record company. Uh-huh. Uh, so there were lots of lawsuits flying every which way, and and all of these things that uh, kept everything uh, stirred up. Yeah, it seems and, to point to alcohol, even more than drugs or money, as the primary devil uh, to the situation. At that point, yeah. Uh, it was, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, Glenn and Alice had had gotten deeper and deeper into the bottle, you know, and it went from beer and now Glenn had gotten Alice drinking, uh, whiskey. So, so things change and all of a sudden their, their sarcastic humor that was funny, all of a sudden, uh, by the end of the day, it wasn't so funny anymore, you know, it got nasty. So, so there was, uh, a change of, uh, wanting to hang out with each other as much, you know, uh, and, uh, and also we were just plain exhausted. We were doing so much that you could, we'd have a day off and that would be the entire day would be flying somewhere. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what kind of a count. day off is that? that? Count? Right. <laughs> I mean, talk what about burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, or, Hey, like take seven four years. Yeah. Yeah, take four days off. And by the way, write your next album. <laughs> so, yeah, it was... You needed a break. Yeah, well, I mean, we weren't... It, that wasn't exclusive to us. Look at all the stuff the Beatles did in, in yeah. the short period of time that they were active. So, yeah. so it's, you know, it's it's standard. You know, it's just that we had all of a sudden this opportunity uh, uh most bands don't make their big money on their first record deal. It's when you get to the end of that record deal and you're popular enough to have some negotiating clout for your next record deal, that's when you make your money. And we had gotten just to that point where we were ready to either negotiate the next deal. Yeah. We, Oh, okay. Warner brothers. If you want to keep us, then you're going to have to pay for it. Cause we, we might go to Atlantic or we might go over here, you know? So, mm-hmm. so that kind of a thing. So the timing was, was like that. All of a sudden, uh, the waters were tested for the name being accepted as a solo name. And, uh, and then the fans all showed up and, and, uh, and that was the end of us. So, so that's how that happened, and it was it was really really tough. Nobody has any idea. I mean, we were everybody thinks we're so wealthy and everything. We were all of a sudden treading waves overnight, and yeah. uh, and so it was not only financially devastating, but it was also my best friend, you know, took off with the with yeah. our band. You know, the only thing I well, not the only thing I had Cindy. Uh, you know, and family, but the Thank only you. thing I really cared about in life, and I built my whole career building this name, and now all of a sudden I'm not associated with the name anymore. In fact, in fact, it's uh, I'm being uh, painted as somebody that uh, refused to do theatrics. I'm like, what? I'm the one that said let's do theatrics. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it was tough. Um, you know, I can't say that. Uh, with Glenn's situation, you know, and Alice's, I thought we were going to, the only reason I agreed to do a break, 
uh, Michael wanted to do a solo album because he could kind of see the painting on the wall. And uh, then when he said that, then Neil wanted to do an album. And I'm like, I didn't want to take a break, but I, I got their argument that if we take a break, maybe Glenn and Alice can clean up their act because right. they're, they're headed down, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that talked me into it, and uh, I didn't have a choice anyway. Those uh, Michael was going to record a solo album, and that was it. So uh, it, it wasn't. It was one of the the points where everything the band had done before that uh, depended on a vote, and the majority won, and then everybody would move on with no grudge or anything, and and that's how we did everything. Every part of every song, every what we wore and everything was uh, done democratically that way. Yeah, this and is a, without a doubt a group effort. It's very obvious in the book that uh, that there there is no Alice Cooper with without the five of you. Well, it, it it's different. You know, it's like uh, Alice and I were looking at this book in art class all the way back before we had a band, and we came to this picture of Sigmund Freud by Salvador Dali. We're going, wow, look at the detail and everything, and admiring it. And then when we turned the page, there was this giant picture of this, these grotesque body parts, and way down in the corner is this tiny Sigmund Freud. The previous page was just an, page was just an enlargement of that detail. And that's kind of what it's like. You know, if you take that one element out of the painting and focus on it, it's still good. Yeah. But when you see it in the whole picture, it's it's that much better. So that's how I look at it. I'm an Alice fan. Alice is a powerful entertainer, and and you always get your money's worth. You know, he's a a master showman. Yeah. And uh, he's got an incredible band, so... So I am a I'm an Alice fan, but there's just something about the chemistry of the the original group that had this uh, element of uh, surprise that that doesn't seem to be as strong as it used to be to me. You know, I'm biased though. <laughs> no, I I agree. Uh, so, uh, okay, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, it's the is the topper and, and how the book ends. Uh, I would ask if you guys um, were seeking respect when you started, but uh, that couldn't ever be the case. Um, still, in the end, it's just the the certification of how influential and important the Alice Cooper group was to the history of rock and roll. I know you guys are now back as friends uh, with Vince and Alice and even go out on tour every once in a while. And while Alice went on without you, um, other than Welcome to My Nightmare, which kind of sounds like a group effort anyway, uh, none of his solo albums compare to what you guys did in the early 1970s. There must be some satisfaction in that, right? Well, I, well, I guess, yeah, to be honest. But, you know, it, you talk to fans out there, and there's certain albums of Alice's solo career that they love. So, uh, so it's not, it's not that drastic. It just depends, uh, on, You know, uh, those that came uh, to to him in the 80s when he kind of was like the the godfather of glam, uh, you know, when glam was a big thing. I can see some of that, like uh, the ballad Poison, uh, what have you. But Poison is a great song. It's a great song. It's a great song. But but uh, just just as a as a cultural 
identity. Um, there's nothing like that that first taste, and you guys were there uh, creating that. And, and I really want to make that point. Is that, well, thank that you. This, this I, I think the element effort. of uh, I think the element of danger is uh, you know people used to come out of curiosity to see what we were doing, but they wanted to see it at a distance because there was a element of danger there. And uh, it seems like now there's an element of familiarity, and there's uh, not the element of you don't know what's going to happen. Now when you go to an Alice show, you know what's going to happen. It's nostalgic in a lot of ways. Uh, and yes, to your point, it's, it's much safer. Um, but uh, do, do you ever think about your, you know, your influence? And uh, it's funny, I, I, can, I can make connections to all kinds of rock bands and uh, even other things that are that the Alice Cooper band, Alice Cooper group helped spawn. You know, I mean, obviously, there's the metal and the glam scenes and even punk, you know, as, as we, we said just a little bit ago, Johnny Rotten says Killers is his favorite album of all time. But and you know, there's Kiss, you know, which is an, you know, an obvious homage to you guys, Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie. But, like, how about Rocky Horror Picture Show? Uh, it seems Richard O'Brien owes you a, a little debt. And and here's one that may be a little far out, but the original names for the band, the Spiders and the Naz, uh, aren't they used in the breakout album for David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust character? Well, well you know, uh, this is how I look at it. An artist is somebody who has influences and they put those all together and they take it somewhere new, you know? So it's like, uh, it's like the beach boys, you know, Brian Wilson, liked the, uh, I don't know what the four freshmen or one of those singing groups. And he liked Chuck Berry and he said, I'm going to put the two together. And that's exactly what he did, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And you're not, and when you hear it, it's definitely beach boys. It's not, it's not the two elements put together. You hear the Beach Boys, so no, or the Rolling Stones trying to play old blues songs, and uh, they do it kind of poorly, and they create this whole new sort of swagger to uh, to old blues songs, and hence uh, we uh, we have the Rolling Stones. Exactly, and all of a sudden, America is hearing a British invasion uh, of bands that are actually playing American music that wasn't being played on American radios at the time until right. they came along. Right, right, right. So, yeah, exactly. It's it's all influences, you know, and uh, so KISS uh, uh, take uh, influence, and then they take it to their own place. So, you know, it's all good, and, and it's theatrical. I like theatrical, and, and uh, you know, it's a compliment. You know, people that, that uh, say that they're influenced by my bass playing or whatever, of course it's a compliment. You know, it's like Nikki Six once told me, and, I, and it's probably only because I was in the room with him, but he said, every song I ever wrote, I start with one of your bass lines. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what? Really? And so then I go home and dig out my Motley albums and try to find anything. I couldn't find any of it. <laughs> well, at least in his mind. In, at least in his mind. You know, that, you know we, we brought this up a couple times. I'm surprised there hasn't been the uh, Alice Cooper jukebox musical on Broadway. Yeah, well, I think they tried a couple of times. I think there was a, a couple of attempts for Alice on, on Broadway. Uh, who knows? I mean, stuff like that is happening these days. Green Day did one, the Carol yeah, King and all, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Jersey Boys and all that stuff. So, you know, it's, 
it's wide open for that. Uh, it's just a matter of Alice could play somewhere else in New York City to way more people. <laughs> oh, true. That's true. That's true. That's yeah. True. So, uh, so that's that's the other thing. But uh, you know, I worked with Joe and Albert Bouchard, Blue Oyster Cult. You know, we have a band called Blue Coop. That's true. And you know, I'm talking about uh, we go out and do these gigs, and there's always seems to be an Alice Cooper. Uh, uh, tribute band guy there, you know, that looks like Alice. And so I'm like, uh, they're like, what would these guys come oh, out of the right. woodwork? How many of them are you? I oh said, my! How, how many are there out there? And I said, well, it seems like everywhere we go, we run into somebody. And I said, but you got, you know, Blue Oyster Cult must have tribute bands. And they said, no. <laughs> they said, no. I like, there's got to be some out there. Come on, people. <laughs> All right, last question. Um, you know, I started with the idea that you guys were the rock and roll equivalents to the Impressionists of Paris 100 years earlier. And a big point we make around here at uh, Rock and Roll Archaeology is that this music and the times are as significant, maybe even more so, to art history. So help prove my point. I want to bring up an interaction you guys had with what would be considered in the hollowed halls and ivory towers of art houses around the world as a true giant, and that is Salvador Dali. Uh, can you tell us the story of working with him and what he said about Alice Cooper? Well, uh, I met Dali at the St. Regis Hotel in New York City, where he his apartment was. Him and uh, Gala were there, and uh, I was very nervous to meet him. We were working on this. Uh, he he did a 360-degree hologram of Alice. And this was a new technology at the time. They had a young scientist there that was going to create this thing with him. And so now I'm going to go meet him and, and discuss it with him and have a few meetings. Yeah, and, and I was really so nervous. The audience understands this is like 1974, uh, and holograms are like, th this is high tech uh, at this time. Right. And and it's Dolly. So, <laughs> uh, and, and then uh, Carolyn Pfeiffer, who worked for the Alice Cooper group at the time, who was the one that would tell us who's in the room and who to go say hi to and what this person's name is and all that. Uh, I went to her and I said, hey, I'm really nervous. I'm going to meet Salvador Dolly. Give me some tips. And she said, oh, he's easy. Just call him Maestro. And I'm like, okay, well, what else? And she said, no, that's all you need to know. I'm like, you're kidding. I'm nervous about this. So I'm at the St. Regis waiting for Dolly to show up and he comes walking in the room and he's walking across the room sort of toward me. And then I, I looked at him and I said, maestro. And his face lit up like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and I was his best friend. She was right. <laughs> I was his best friend. Yeah. And he loved the Alice Cooper group. In fact, we had played this show in Paris for Pierre Cardin, the uh, fashion designer. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he opened Pierre Cardin's theater. It's still there. And, uh, and, but this was the first show, the first rock show that he had in there. And we played, and it was decades, even maybe within the last uh, four years, I found out that the reason we were the first band to play in Pierre Cardin's theater is because he was friends with Salvador Dali, and Dali told him that he should get us. Really? And Dali had a, uh, a news clipping about uh, it, it was Alice 
did an interview, and Alice cited Salvador Dali as our biggest influence. And Dali carried that in his pocket, and that he unfolded it and showed it to Pierre Cardin to show him that he, about this band, Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I met Dali, and oh man, it was, he would speak in he kept switching languages. And then when he would land on English, it was like talking about flaming giraffes or whatever, you know, it made no sense. <laughs> but, but he was very so he was gracious. surreal in real life. Right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And he was a uh, uh, very gracious host. I mean, it's the bar at the St. Regis Hotel. And everybody that came in, he would go over and greet them and ask them what they wanted to drink and go get their drink for them. Wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, my uh, gala uh, hit it off with Cindy, and they were having this conversation. But So Dolly's sitting there rattling along, and I'm paying, trying to figure out what he's talking about, you know. And, and he, out of the corner of his eye, without even looking, he saw Cindy kept glancing over at this cane that he had that had this really fancy uh, handle on it. And Dolly, without even looking at Cindy, just held his arm out and handed her the cane so she could look at it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we went up to their apartment, and uh, Charlie Carnell, our lighting guy that I mentioned earlier, was yeah. with yeah. us. Mm-hmm. And there was a wheelchair in their apartment with an umbrella uh, yes. above it. And Charlie went to sit down in that, and Gala flipped out, no, 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 no. And, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> She said, if you sit down in that, rain comes out of the umbrella and it makes a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> An actual art piece. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, uh, you know, a, a great artist like Dolly uh, recognized what you guys were doing. And, th- and that's the point I wanted to make. Dennis Dunaway, it's been an immense pleasure talking with you today here on Deeper Digs in Rock. Oh, thank you so much. You really have done your homework and have great questions. I really enjoyed it. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Dennis Dunaway. What an extraordinary time the original band had in the early 70s. It was a struggle to begin, but their determination won out, and they created a whole new genre in rock and roll. Uh, Shock rock, Mr. Nice Guys. Sure, some critics like to sneer and lift a nose at them, but those records are fucking awesome, and their influence now cannot be denied. You know, Alice the Man takes the remainder of the original guys, uh, rest in peace original lead guitarist Glenn Buxton, out on the road every few years. It is a special treat to hear most of the guys who in no small fashion originally put the sinister group into place. 
Even dear old Alice will certainly agree that the creation of his monstrous character that has been in the public eye for almost 50 years now was a joint concoction that began in a secret lab out in the Arizona desert. So, if you get the chance in the future to see them, grab it. Look, we only lightly touched on the details found in Dennis's book, Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs, My Adventures in the Alice Cooper Group, written along with Chris Hodenfield and from our friends at Macmillan Publishing. It really warmed my heart reading the real story on how a bunch of crazy arthouse desert rats become the biggest band in the world for a time by first diving off the deep end. Truly inspiring. Okay, that's it for this edition, and I hope you stop back again for Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist, and as always, keep up the rockin'. Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 